This is Dave. He really enjoys going Abundant Life Church. He's always considerate to his fellow church doors. This fellow is disturbing everyone around him. Oh, look, Dave is shutting off his phone. Uh, uh, uh. Now is not the time for talking or texting. Oh, well, now look at that. There's a true church watching friend. Let's all be more like Dave. Well, good morning, Abundant Life. How are you? It's good to see you. How are you? I am just not feeling the energy right now. How's everybody doing? That's the Christmas spirit. Hey, you like my new shirt? My wife picked it out. She said it goes really well with my eyes. And so, thank you, thank you. So we're in a series called Flixmas, and I'm so glad you're here. If you are with us today for the first time, we just started this series last week, and we're taking four weeks, and we are looking at some of the great Christmas movies, okay? And I realize great is relative, because some of you may say, that's not a great Christmas movie. That's okay. It's relative. It's your opinion, our opinion, and we'll still love each other. And so we're looking at some of the uh, Christmas movies of the season, and we are drawing some principles from those movies. So I'm so glad you're here. Last week, we looked at a Charlie Brown Christmas. How many of you uh, went home and sometime during the week you watched a Charlie Brown Christmas? Okay, a few of you did. And does anybody remember, what was the key word that we kind of brought out of that movie? Simple, yes, simple, simplicity. How many of you decided that you're going to make or keep Christmas simple this year? No, you're going to get in the hustle and bustle and, and make it as busy as ever, right? Okay, in um, next week we're going to be looking at, I think it's uh, Home Alone, it's next week, Home Alone, and then we're looking at the movie Elf, and today we are looking at Christmas Vacation. <laughs> Christmas Vacation. Now... Um, again, uh, I tell you this, that you know, unlike Charlie Brown, Christmas, okay, you have to use your own discretion if you are going to watch Christmas Vacation, okay? Don't send emails. You know, I had somebody last week, uh, last uh, two services ago, after the first service, they said, in preparation for today's message, I went home and watched Christmas Vacation. <laughs> okay, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but... But again, it's up to your own discretion, okay? But anyway, Christmas Vacation. So if you're familiar with Christmas Vacation, the movie um, is about uh, Clark Griswold and his family, and he has this idea of a perfect, perfect Christmas, right? With all of the lights, 25,000 lights on his house and all this stuff. Has all these visions of a beautiful, beautiful Christmas until family shows up. And when, how many of you realize that when family shows up, things can get messy real fast? Okay, and so uh, watch a couple of clips from this movie. This holiday season, the Griswolds are going to play it safe. Clark, we're stuck under a truck. Oops. They're staying at home. I give you the Griswold family Christmas tree. Hope you're not getting sap all over your sweater, Clark. All Clark wants is a quiet, old-fashioned Christmas. Sorry. Got a little knot here. You can work on that. Ah! What he's going to get is the gift 
that keeps on living. Merry Christmas. His family. We didn't come to impose. You got a kiss for me? Eh, you better take a rain check on that, Art. He's got a lip fungus they ain't identified yet. But no holiday could ever be more deeply touching. We were gonna call, but Eddie wanted to make it a surprise. If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now. <laughs> Ah, I'm really gonna fly down the hill with this stuff. So genuinely moving. Can I refill your eggnog for you? Drive you out to the middle of nowhere, leave you for dead. Or more down to earth. Merry Christmas! If Santa is smart, he'll stay well clear of this joint. It's a death trap. Then Christmas with the Griswolds. They want you to say grace. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. This year, let Chevy Chase light up your holidays. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. That thing had nine lives. She just spent them all. <laughs> okay, so uh, listen, your family may not be that crazy, but I think you would agree with me that, that sometimes people can just be weird, okay? And, and people can be funny, and people can just be awkward. How many of you recognize that when you sometimes see Christmas cards come out with these Christmas family pictures and all this stuff... I was looking at a bunch of those this past week, and there's a whole lot that we decided that we were not going to show you, but, but here's a couple right here. <sighs> That's, I don't know, to me, it's just a little weird, okay? It just feels creepy to me, although some of you might be thinking, now, there's a great idea. Okay, here, or you've got right here, isn't that cute? And you won't notice it probably unless I point it out. See the hand right here that's kind of holding up the baby there, so you want to catch that. And then we've got uh, yeah, family that likes lights, maybe electricians, I'm not sure. Okay, and we've got here sibling rivalries. Anybody here identify with that? Okay, I, that would have been like our Christmas, and that would have been my sister on the floor. Okay, and uh, here you go. If you have a pet, some of you are thinking that there's a good idea. There's a good idea right there. Why don't we think of that? Joy to the world. Yes, yes, yes. And we have our own Greg and Sean Stranigan's amazing Christmas picture from years ago holding this salmon. Yes, that's Greg and Sean and this big salmon that I think Sean caught up in Alaska somewhere. And Greg says that picture just keeps resurfacing. Well, we're doing everything we can around here to keep it alive and, and to, bring, <laughs> to bring it back. But I think all of you would agree that, that sometimes families can be messy. And, and in the words of Charles Dickens, that it could be the best of times or it could be the worst of times when families come together. I think all of us would agree that, that sometimes families can be the greatest source of joy and they can be the greatest source of pleasure when family comes together or it can be the greatest source of frustration and stress because, let's face it, sometimes we don't get along with our family members. And I don't know about you. I don't know what it is you're dealing with. As you move into this Christmas season and you think about your family and, and all of your relatives coming together, some of you might be dealing with some stuff. Let me ask you some questions. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have people showing up at your house this Christmas and that one person always seems to have a chip on his shoulder? 
or she always has an ax to grind. Or maybe there's that person in your family that you had some kind of a disagreement some time ago and you've never really settled the issue. And so it's just awkward when you get together. You just feel the tension and you, you don't talk. How many of you have a family member, all they love to do is talk about politics? And isn't this a great time of the year, you know? Isn't this a great time to bring up politics? You're looking forward to that, aren't you? And if you, maybe, maybe you're the only person who, who believes in Jesus, and so to have the token prayer, hey, let's ask so-and-so to have the prayer so that, you know, we can, you know, not make them feel offended that we don't pray, you know, and you feel weird because you're the only person who believes in Jesus or something like that. And so there's probably no end to the different scenarios of, of what creates an awkward situation when the family comes together. But here's what's interesting. I want you to write this down in your notes. When we turn to the Christmas story, we discover that God isn't turned off by our messiness. He's not turned off by our messy families. He's not put off by them. In fact, have you noticed that in the Christmas story, and not just in the Christmas story, but in God's story, it's hard to find normal people. Have you discovered that? You know, I've always known it to be so, but it didn't really hit me until I was preparing this message that the Bible is full of whacked out, messed up people. They really are. It's, it's like, you know, everybody's normal until you get to know them, right? Everybody's normal. You look perfectly normal to me. Some of you, I'd maybe only have to have a minute's conversation and I would figure out, eh, you know. Some of you might take a little bit longer, might actually have to come to your house and have a dinner and then realize, oh my gosh, these are crazy people, you know. But everybody's normal until you get to know them. But if you look at the Bible, you have a hard time finding normal people. You really do. Let me, for example, and this is just in the book of Genesis. The first husband and wife, they blatantly disobeyed God. Okay, they blatantly disobeyed God. They have children, and what do, they, what do their children do? One kills the other, okay? I mean, things are going from bad to worse really, really fast. Okay, Abraham, uh, his wife Sarah, she, she's so grieved by her infertility that she decides that she's going to give her handmaiden, Hagar, to Abraham to have a baby. She has a baby, and now she's jealous. Now she's envious. Imagine that. And, and she abuses Hagar, and Abraham just is kind of like hands off. He has his passive take on the whole thing. Abraham's um, nephew, Lot, they had to drag him reluctantly drag him out of uh, this perverse city of Sodom and drag him out in, 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 to get him away from the city. And then only weeks later, his daughters seduce him into drunken incest. Isaac and Rebekah, we've heard of Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, what do they do? They play favorites with their two uh, sons, their twin boys. And it becomes this sibling rivalry that becomes one of the worst in human history. Jacob manipulates his brother Esau, and he, and he cheats him out of his, out of his birthright and, and his blessing. And then Esau, he has no discernment whatsoever, and so he exchanges his birthright for a bowl of soup. 
And then he grieves his parents by marrying Canaanite women. And then he nurses a 20-year grudge against his conniving younger brother. Jacob, his, two, his daughter, is raped. And what do Simeon and Levi do? Well, they do what any good brothers would do. They go to the town and kill all the males. Go massacre all of them. Jacob's older brother, Reuben, he can't resist his incestuous desire and sleeps with one of his father's concubines. Ten of Jacob's brothers conspire to kill him, but they end up selling him into slavery to a traveling band of merchants on their way to Egypt, and then they lie to their father about it for the next 22 years. I mean, that's just in Genesis. I mean, these are some whacked out stories, aren't they? And so when you look at the Bible, and, and then you come to the New Testament, and you come to Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew begins by giving Jesus' family tree, his, his, um, his heritage, his genealogy. And my guess is most people here haven't read that in a long time. Anybody here? I had somebody in the last service actually read it last week. Anybody here? Read it. Okay, right here. Okay, bless you. Anybody here? Read it. Okay, I had one in the last service. I only could spot one this service. And it, it's tough. I mean, it's tough. If it, was, if it had names like, you know, Dave and, 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 uh, and uh, Jeff and, and uh, Robbie or Jen or something like that, it might be easier to read, but it doesn't. It has names like Rehoboam and Zerubbabel and Eliakim and Eleazar and all of that. And, and it's hard for us people in the 21st century to wrap our minds around, why would Matthew do that? Why would Matthew begin his, his book and, and the story of Jesus by giving this long, dry list of names that nobody is going to read? Why would he do it? Well, one of the reasons he did it is he was writing to Jewish people. And the Jewish people were very interested in this because your genealogy told what tribe you came from. But more importantly, it told you if you were a 100% Jew or not, if you were 100% Jewish. And it also said, it, also, it told if, if you, in, the, in this particular case, it verified whether or not you were really the Messiah because the, the people knew that, that Jesus was going to come from King David. And so this proved that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the real Messiah in a time when lots of people were claiming to be the Messiah. And so what Matthew does at the very front of the book is establishes this foundation that gives strength to the rest of the book of Matthew. But it's very interesting as you look at the genealogies of people in history, back in Jesus' day, it wasn't unusual for a person who may have been a king or a monarch or something like that to actually have had somebody to pay to have somebody figure out what their genealogy was because they wanted to prove that they came from royal blood or heritage. And so they would pay to have somebody come up with this. But not only that, what they would also do is they would pay to edit some people out. The cousin Eddie's. They didn't want them in there. And so it's not unusual to look at the genealogy of a king and there would be a 50-year gap where there would be nobody mentioned. Well, it's probably because, you know, let us just pay you some money because we really want you to Photoshop them out, okay? Just take them out, scratch them out, take them off the list. We don't want them associated with me. When you come to Jesus and what God does, it's the exact opposite. In fact, what, what God does is he goes to great extreme 
to make sure everybody is included. And I think this is so cool that God does this because there are some really, really sketchy and shady people in this, this whole group of people that are listed here. And so as we, as we look at this today, this is what I want you to be aware of. And write this down. Sometimes we feel the pressure to pretend, okay, or to cover up. We feel the pressure to cover up before God or to pretend that my life is better than it really is, to pretend that my family is better than it really is. We show up at church, and, and people have these big smiles. It's, it's what I call a Facebook smile. You know people on Facebook, right? I mean, you, nobody is having a bad day on Facebook, on Facebook, everybody's taking this exotic vacation. Everybody's, you know, sipping coffee out on their porch and looking at beautiful sunrise. And, and all the families are so happy and they're smiling. And you're thinking, I know them. That is not an accurate picture. And so we have this Facebook smile sometimes when we come to church. Maybe it's because we feel like we've got to pretend everything is okay. Maybe we're even trying to convince God. I'm, I'm not sure. But we all know it's not true. Because we're all just a little bit messed up. And so write this down. The more we pretend that we're anything but messy, the more we keep Jesus away from us. And so we have to invite him into our mess. And I think that's what Matthew is doing to a degree. He's showing us that there's some messy people in the Bible and there's some messy people in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, it's, uh, what, uh, I want you to understand something, though, very clearly as we enter into this that God is not dysfunctional, okay? God is not dysfunctional, but people are. People are. In fact, just find somebody who looks dysfunctional around you and say, you're dysfunctional. <laughs> you're, you're dysfunctional. You know, again, everybody's normal until you get to know them, okay? And, and, but understand, God is not dysfunctional, but let's just admit it, we, we can be just a little bit whacked out at times. And, and so when you look at this genealogy, what I want you, I want you to notice some things that I think are just kind of interesting off the top here, that, that this family tree is divided into three divisions of 14. Three divisions of 14. So it covers 28 uh, generations, and it is around 1,700 years of time, okay, or 1,700 thereabouts. And what I think Matthew is doing is he's showing us that God is in absolute control of the events and the circumstances of life, okay? That it, things don't catch him by surprise. What I mean by that, when Jesus came onto the scene, it wasn't as if, what am I going to do? These people are so messed up. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll go, and, and I'll go as my son. I'll send my son. No, it wasn't like some second thought, afterthought. God had this in his plan. This was in God's plan because God is, is always working and moving the events of this world in accordance with his redemptive purposes. That's what he's doing. And, and that's, in, in, in fact, that's one reason why you and I don't need to live in fear because we know God's in charge, even though it seems like things are just really messed up, even though it seems like people are really messed up. And so let's go to Matthew chapter 1, and I'm not going to read the entire genealogy, but I'm going to read enough of it where I want you to circle the names of some people as I read through this, okay? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham. Let's, start, let's stop with Abraham, okay? Abraham. Circle Abraham. 
Who's Abraham? You know, father of the Jewish people. He's a great guy, right? But you know what else he is? He's a liar and he's a coward. Okay? He lied about his wife being his sister two times so he wouldn't have to fight for her. Okay? So he's a liar and he's a coward. Do we have any cowards in the room? Would you raise your hand? <laughs> what about liars? Any liars in here? Oh, come on. Come on. These are easy. It's not going to get any easier. Raise your hand now because it's only going to go downhill from here. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but I know you are. I know some of you are cowards, and I know some of you are liars. But don't worry. Just in your mind, raise your hand if you are. That's Abraham. And so Abraham was the father of Isaac, circle Isaac. Isaac was also a liar. He showed favoritism to his children, so he was a bad parent. Do we have any bad parents in here? Okay, you don't raise your hand outwardly, just in your mind. Isaac was the father of Jacob, okay? What would Jacob, circle Jacob. Jacob was an extortionist, and he was a swindler, okay? He lied to his father, he cheated his brother, and he ripped off his father-in-law. Has anybody here ever ripped off their father-in-law? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. And then there's Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Now, Judah, just circle Judah right now. I'll come back to him in just a second. He's the father of Perez and, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar. I can imagine if you picture this list that I'm reading, it's a, it's a big Christmas dinner and everybody's sitting around the table and Matthew's reading the names of all the guests and he comes to Tamar and people just go, <clears throat> Matthew, no, please don't. Why did you, why was she invited? Why is she on the list? Why is she here? So who's Tamar? Well, Tamar, she was a widow and she had no children. And in that culture, to be a widow and to plus have no children, you were despised. In fact, she is what I would call the original desperate housewife. And she does something really desperate and she does something really stupid. What she does is she dresses herself up as a prostitute and she sleeps with Judah. Okay, that's the name I just had you circle a moment ago, her father-in-law. She, in case you missed it, she dressed up as a prostitute and she slept with her father-in-law. Now, of course, we're asking the question, why is the father-in-law sleeping with a prostitute? Okay, that's just another example of how messed up this whole family is. So Judah was a widower and he frequented prostitutes. Now, this occurred so frequently that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, knew that if she disguised herself as a prostitute, it was just a matter of time before he would come along and proposition her, which he did, and she got pregnant. Matthew, 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 what a blemish. What a blemish. Can somebody pay you to edit her out? Take her off the list. Photoshop her out. She doesn't belong on the list. Let's go to verse 4. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon. Okay, now Matthew's getting back on track. These are the blue bloods. These are the pure breeds. These are good people. And then in verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Circle Rahab. What do we know about Rahab? Anybody know? She was a prostitute, a prostitute, a woman of the evening, a woman of ill repute. And on top of that, she's not even a Jew, okay? She's the wrong religion. And so this is what we know about her. She is an immoral 
pagan. That's where she is. I wonder, do we have any immoral pagans here today? I don't know. I don't know. Or, or is, you don't have to raise your hand. But have any of you ever wrestled with your faith in God? Have any of you ever done anything immoral? Don't raise your hand. You don't need to. Hmm. I wonder, do you have any of those coming to your Christmas dinner this year? One of those be sitting at your table. Let's go down to verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Okay, let's talk about Ruth for just a second. Circle Ruth, okay? Ruth. Why put her in there? Okay, because not only is she not a Jew, she is a Moabite. And how many of you have been keeping up a little bit with the tensions in Chicago right now? If you think that's a tense situation... It probably pales in comparison to the tension between the Moabites and the Jewish people. They hated each other. And the Moabites were just mean. They were, they were just horrible, horrible people. And, and so it's this kind of person who is now at the table. This is the kind of person of whom racial slurs would be made. She's definitely got the wrong color of skin. She's from the wrong side of the tracks. Now, maybe at this juncture in this list, maybe all of a sudden, maybe you're getting the picture. This is a different kind of king that God's bringing into the world. This is a, a different kind of royal family. It's not exactly what I pictured when I think of a royal family that God's putting together. Continuing on. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, King David, circle King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had, right? I mean, he's their pride and joy. You can hear the music playing in the background when they read his name. He's the one to stand up and salute and all that stuff. But listen, what was David? David was a polygamist. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer, and he was a poor father. David was the father of Solomon. Check this out. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Circle Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife. Interesting how they did that there. People around the table, if you can just picture, they're all sitting around the table, and this whole list of people are being mentioned, and all of a sudden, Uriah's wife is mentioned. Right about now, everybody puts their head down, they start eating, and nobody is saying a word. You ever been in one of those awkward situations, sitting around your family table and so-and-so walks in or such-and-such -such situation is brought up and everybody just goes silent, starts eating, and nobody's saying a word? And, you, and somebody says, hmm, can anybody say awkward? And so you think of Uriah's wife, and, and all you think about is cover-ups, okay? Watergate, spygate, sex scandals, the murder cover-up of their beloved King David, Uriah's wife. Who was she? Anybody know? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. The, the blemish on the family tree. I mean, it wasn't Bathsheba's fault that David thought she was sexy and while she was bathing, bathing on the roof, and, and he looks at her, and he looks, and he looks, and, and then he invites her up to his room, and, and he had the power to do that, and he did, and we all know what happened. She gets pregnant, and so... And so he arranges for Uriah, her husband, to be sent to the front lines where he knows he'll be killed. She's the one that was the unpopular villain at the table. We don't want her here. You know, every family has like a scapegoat. 
outsiders who ruin things. The one in the family who is looked down upon because they, they're, the ones, they're the one who ruined the marriage. He's the one who committed adultery. He, he's the one who had the affair. She's the one who asked for the divorce. Or, or he's the one who couldn't stop gambling. Or he's the one who decided to change his sexual preference. And so we just really don't want to mention him. And it's the scapegoat. I don't know. Maybe you're the scapegoat. Maybe you're the one when your name is mentioned or, or the thing that you did is the thing that kind of haunts you and causes everybody to go silent whenever that comes up. And she's on the list. I mean, stop and think about it. Quite a way, isn't it, to introduce the coming of God into the world? Oh, my goodness. Verse 7, Solomon. Who was Solomon? Solomon, he was a polygamist. And he was drawn away from God by his many, many pagan wives. He was the father of Rehoboam. Circle Rehoboam. He foolishly split the kingdom of Israel in half. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Circle Abijah. Abijah walked in the sins of his father, and, and he was not devoted to God at all. The father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of uh, Jehoram. And Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Circle Je Uzziah. He disobeyed the worship regulations that God had given, and as a result, he was struck with leprosy. Uzziah, the father of uh, Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was a very, very wicked person, and he led Israel to sacrificing children. I mean, many of the kings, many of the kings in Jesus' line, honestly, they were just not good people. In any stretch of the imagination, they weren't good people and they weren't good leaders. And, and you could go on and on. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Circle Manasseh. He sacrificed his own son to an idol. And you could go on and on and on. And verse 17, thus were the 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. What is Matthew trying to say? What is God trying to say to us? Write this in your notes. I think God is making it clear to us that before Jesus even shows up, that this one who is coming isn't from a perfect family. He's not from a perfect family. He's not coming as this king with this sense about him that he's some untouchable royalty and he hides behind the halo of his pristine or pristine heritage. That's, that's not what he's coming as. Jesus, you know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is coming right into our Clark Griswold crazy Christmas vacation messed up family. That's what he's doing. Into our messed up lives. I find it very interesting that, that Jesus is coming right into the middle of our messed up broken lives. People who are stupid, people who are selfish, people who are broken, people who are wounded, people who are just like you and me who are hungry for and desperately need God. 
And I think God is saying that Jesus came from a family like that to a family like yours. Because when you walk in on Jesus' family Christmas dinner and you look around this table of all these people, this is who you see there. Prostitutes, liars, cheaters, manipulators, outsiders, pagans, murderers, adulterers, mixed up, messed up people that you thought you'd never see there. That's who you see. And all of them were chosen. All of them redeemed. All of them forgiven. All of them used by God. All of them used by him to bring about his redemptive purposes. Which tells me that God can take the unlikeliest of people and turn things upside down to use them for his purposes. In fact, evidence would suggest that's what he would rather do. Have you noticed that God doesn't use a lot of perfect people? But have you noticed that God uses a lot of really broken people? And so write this in your notes. God understands the messiness of our lives and of our families. He does. He just understands. He understands the messiness. Have you ever walked away from one of your family gatherings and thought to yourself, I have got one strange family? You ever do that? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I can't think of anybody. It's, you know, if, if you can't think of anybody, <laughs> maybe it's you. I, I, maybe you're Uncle Eddie. I'm, I'm not sure. But, but maybe you feel like it. Maybe you feel like the blemish on the family tree. Maybe you feel like the one that everybody goes silent when you walk into the room. Maybe you feel like the one that everybody's judging. Can I just say something to you? If you are, if you do feel that way, guess what? You're in really good company. You're in good company. And, and I think you and I, when we look at Jesus' family tree, it ought to give us great encouragement. Because although Jesus himself was perfect, and Jesus himself was sinless. His earthly heritage, his lineage, it was far from it. He had one messed up family. And so right after the genealogy that Matthew gives us, then he goes right into the birth account of Jesus. And I want to skip down to verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Circle that name, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, last week I told you, what does Jesus mean? Jesus means God saves. God saves. God does not leave us in the midst of our messy families. He chooses to redeem us, to rescue us from them. As I think about this list, as I reflect on this family history, it causes me to wonder... What, have, what, what would have been recorded of me had I been listed in the lineage of Jesus? I mean, I can think of all kinds of embarrassing things right now in my life 
that I would not want some author writing about me in a list. And, and even more than the embarrassment that I would feel, I am made so painfully aware of how desperately I need Jesus because I'm broken. I have a past. I have issues. And I desperately need Jesus. I got to thinking about the fact that, that Jesus' bloodline is one crazy, toxic bloodline. But the blood of Jesus is victorious. And it covers my sin. Because it's the sinless, perfect Lamb of God. Whose blood was shed to cover me. And, and how Jesus enters into, into the very middle of our messed up lives. And he says, I'm here to rescue you from your sin. If you come down to verse 22, all of this took place. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel. Read the rest of this with, with me. Which means God with us. Isn't it good to know that God loves you and me so much that rather than distance himself from us because we're so broken, he chooses to come right into the middle of our mess to rescue us. I, I love John chapter 1. You know, John begins his gospel quite differently than Matthew and Luke when he talks about the coming of Jesus into the world. And I'm so glad he did because, and in fact, I want you to read this with me. This is what I want you to memorize this week. Let's read John 1, 1 and 2 and verse 14. Let's do this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Isn't that great? God became flesh, and he made his dwelling. He came into the brokenness of this world. He left the beauty and the splendor of heaven, and he came into this mess. I, I love the message version. It says, he moved into our neighborhood. He moved into our neighborhood. I, I really like that because that tells me he... I mean, he's, he's right there. He's, he's across the street. He's in my neighborhood. I mean, if you can picture, it's Christmas, and, and Jesus is, is having this, this family gathering, and he asks you to come. He lives right next door. He's in your neighborhood. He invites you to come to his Christmas dinner. You're thinking, it's just no way. I, I, I do not want to come into Jesus' presence because I do not deserve to be there. He's waiting, our king. I don't want to be in the presence of, of that kind of royalty. And what you need to understand is if you walk into his house and you walk into his room and you look around the table, you'll see a bunch of broken people there. And I bet you're not a whole lot worse than they are. And so the, the table's been set, the place has been set, there's a place for you, but you have to accept the invitation. 
It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. gone. That's, that's why Jesus came, because he needed to rescue you out of that. I, I, again, I love the Max Lucado writing where it says, you don't keep him out. Don't keep him out. You've got to invite him into the mess and the muck and the mire of your world, because if you don't invite him in, there's no way he can pull you out. You've got to get close. And so Jesus has a place for you at the table. I, I love Ephesians, how Paul kind of brings all of this together. He says, all praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. We are part of his family. And even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. I mean, just try to imagine that. You holy, me holy, me righteous before God. That's impossible. It is impossible with me, but, but through God, no. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. If you've given your life to Jesus, you're in God's family, even though you're broken and you're messed up because the blood of Jesus covers all of our sin and it makes us righteous before him. And he invites you to the table. I'm going to ask you if you'd bow your head and as we close out and, and move into our time of communion. Some of you are here and, and, and maybe you feel like, man, I just, I need to recommit my life to Jesus because I've, I've messed up and I'm broken. I, I know my heart's divided and I've strayed away. And, and what you need to understand is that God knows that. You're not hiding anything from him. You don't need to even try to hide that from him. He knows that. And if you just in your heart say, God, I just want to recommit to following you. By your grace, Lord, help me to follow you daily. Some of you have never opened your heart to Jesus, and, and, and you're not yet covered by the blood of Jesus. And so you're lost in your sin, in your brokenness. But it's the blood of Jesus that covers you and saves you from that. To all who believe, he gave the right to become the sons of God. And so if your desire is to respond to Jesus today for the first time or as a recommitment, I'm going to invite you to pray with me this prayer. Just repeat this after me. Father in heaven, today I thank you for the blood of Jesus, the perfect sinless blood of Jesus that covers my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I choose to follow you. I need you to be my Savior and Lord. I pray this in your name.